0: I, too, greet you in the name of Jesus this morning. I count it a privilege to be here. Many of you are familiar. This church building is not unfamiliar to me, but there are a lot of faces here that I do not know, and that's a good thing. It shows that the church is growing here in this this local body, and uh, our prayers are with you as you continue to seek the Lord in this part of the world. It's a bit of a relief to come here as far as the temperature goes outside, but because of the prominence of heat in Wickenburg, we cool our building. so it is a little warmer in here than it is in our setting at home, but I think I can manage. My blood has been thin to accommodate that, I think. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. This is where we're going to launch from this morning. <coughs> been looking at the Sermon on the Mount at home, and this has gone over a long period of time, and I hope the home congregation is gleaning as much as, as I am from it. I don't think there's boredom there. It seems to be careful attention, and I thank the Lord for that. I don't think it's necessarily because I'm a dynamic speaker, but because our people at home, I believe, desire to be like Jesus. That is a lifelong endeavor, to be like Jesus. I would like to encourage you, first of all, to have a personal time with the Lord in which you search the Scriptures to know what God would have you to know. But make it an effort to see Jesus in the Word, and He's going to be there because He is the Word, the living Word. And then recognize that as you see Him, He would have you to be like Him. And that should be our prayer as we meditate upon the Word of God, as we see Jesus expressed in specific ways and demonstrated, Lord, I want to be like that. That should possess us. To be like Jesus. A lot of my focus as I've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes, is seeing Jesus in the Beatitudes. He's the perfect expression of all of that. If you want to know what Jesus is like in a nutshell... And we have the, the list there of the fruit of the Spirit. We should want that fruit coming from our lives and growing there. It's not pasted there, but it's actually coming from the heart. And that's the beauty. Brother Ellis talked about the difference between the Old and New Testament. And I believe that is so clearly one of the, one of the, the advantages that we have as believers in the New Testament is it's something that comes from the heart. It's not something that we put on and off from one time to the next. If our religion stops when we go through that door, we don't have that religion because religion is not something we put on. Maybe religion isn't the right word there, but the Spirit of God within us will go with us everywhere we go. And if the demonstration of righteousness does not go with us everywhere we go, then we lack it. It's no greater than our weakest moment, and God wants to, to, to have our whole heart, that righteousness be made his, and I, I hope to portray that through this message. The title of the message this morning is Righteousness, Our Inheritance. I don't know what all goes through your mind when you think of an inheritance, but oftentimes we, we hope it's pretty big, that it's It's significant. What a shame it is when a person has an inheritance with their name on it and they don't avail themselves of it. At home, there was an account of a man who lived under our bridge. And after he passed on, it became public knowledge that he had become heir to $250,000, give or take a little, and when he became heir to that, he chose to go out and buy a new cell phone and a camp stove. And he continued his lifestyle. And then he donated the remainder of that money to the town. And I don't think they were any more prudent uh, with the expenditure of that. I think one of the things they purchased was an, a, a restroom, a public restroom there by the bridge for people like him and sunk 60 or 70 or some thousand dollars into that building. And it it probably met, I know it meets some needs. But in the terms of inheritance, God has something with your name on it. And it's your and my responsibility to go and receive it and then put it to use. Until we put the righteousness of Christ to use in our everyday life, it is not ours, it's only a concept. And so I want to encourage us this morning to consider the righteousness of Christ. There's nothing more important than than our inheritance. We sang in a song this morning, it said, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. Do you believe that? <clears throat> if the bills are racking up and you don't have the means to... To pay them. What are you praying for? I think it's right to pray for resources, but we recognize that all our needs are met in Christ. We need we need a perspective that goes beyond the here and now to recognize that eternal need. And all, all our needs, physical, spiritual, emotional, every need is met in Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to meditate upon that. That's something that I'm not prepared to preach on this morning. But there is not a single need that mankind can have that cannot be met in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to read all these verses, but there's a portion of Scripture in After the Beatitudes that begins at verse 13 and goes to the end of the chapter. And I've chosen to look at this as being the righteousness of Christ as expressed toward your fellow man. And then it goes on to righteousness as expressed to God and through our worship and through our prayer and all, all our giving and all those, those aspects of relating to God. There's two verses I want to point out and this rattles me to the core. Anybody that wants to look in honesty at their own lives as they look at Christ, if you're not convicted, you're not seeing Christ. There was another phrase in the song this morning that talked about seeing Jesus as he is and then we'll worship him as we ought. And any person that can hold their head real high after looking at Jesus didn't see him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's 101 to being like Jesus is recognize I'm a needful man. Verse 20 says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. That bars a lot of people. And yet, I believe that our righteousness can exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 48 says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That's a high calling. And I want to introduce a thought to you that was shared with me. That I continue to dwell upon this. But when God gives a promise, within that promise is a command. And whenever God gives you a a command, within that command is a promise. God will not ask you to do anything that with His grace and enabling you cannot do. And I think we need to lay hold of that understanding with the same fervor of all the promises of God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's there's a whole list of, of beautiful and precious promises that God has given us, but they're conditional upon our obedience to them. But it's also true that my obedience is a promise from God that he will enable me to do it. And that's the only thing that gives me hope in this study. And also looking at how I must relate to my fellow men. I just want to go over this. Don't be angry with your brother. I think a lot of us have already committed that sin this morning probably. Maybe on the way to the church. Maybe with our children. Anger is sin. Sin. Anger that is directed toward a person is sin. And yet Jesus was angry with sin, and we must be as well. Later on, we're not to look with lust. To look with lust is equal to committing adultery. Jesus goes on to teach the importance of the sanctity of marriage. We're not to swear oaths. And many of us probably do not curse and swear, but I think a lot of us, and as I preach this message, I've become guilty of the fact that many of us swear by the earth. We swear by a lot of things like our goodness and, our, and, and things about God. We, we, we talk about mercy and all these kind of things. There's expressions that we use that I think, if they're not swaying, they sure border on it. And I think we need to, to have a simplicity of speech That as we have the righteousness of Christ, that will be expressed. We're not to resist evil. We're to go the second mile. We're to lend. How many of us like to lend a brand new item, the new chainsaw that we just got that we haven't even started up yet and somebody else would to use it ahead of us? We're to love our enemies. Those are all things that are very unnatural to us, but they are very natural to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ wants to give us an inheritance. And if we choose to say, I am satisfied with what I got, I'd just as soon have my chainsaw as to have the righteousness of Christ. We're making a choice. We're saying, your inheritance is not valuable to me right now. And yes, we may have a perfectly operating chainsaw that we know what's going on, in. it's well oiled and everything's up to date. But oftentimes we lack the righteousness of Christ because we possess something else. One well, of the purposes of this message is to show that the Sermon of the Mount is for today. There are a lot of people that want to say they come and they see the righteousness of Christ and they say it's impossible. There are theologians today that understand all the Greek and the Hebrew, but they say this is not possible. So therefore, it's for another dispensation. That's not true. It's not biblical. There's a lot of people, depending on where they are in life, will say this isn't fair. My wife just left me. It's not fair that the righteousness of Christ requires me to stay single for the rest of my life. That's not fair. That's not possible. And you can fill in the blank to lend, to to love your enemy, all those things. It's not possible. And so, therefore, they adjust the standard and thereby disinherit all their inheritance, both now and tomorrow and in eternity. Where a person finds themselves in life when they encounter the righteousness of Christ, I think, can affect what they embrace. The Bible says how, how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because they have all their needs met in things. That's a very positive thing in the mind of a human to think that I've got wealth and so therefore my needs are met. But there's also a very negative aspect in which a person finds their needs met in their bitterness. My bitterness supplies my need, therefore I will not accept the righteousness of Christ and forgiveness. And there are people that clutch on to those negative aspects in the same way the rich young ruler clung to his possessions and wealth. I think from that perspective, when we look at our things, it may be that God doesn't want you to have a brand new chainsaw. And so therefore, he'll allow it to be destroyed. But in the process, you can have the righteousness of Christ. I think that's a perspective we all need to have on our junk. Our dying things. Those things that actually possess us rather than we possessing them. Some find it in morality. Some find it in drugs. They cling to those things because it's meeting their needs and Jesus would like to meet that need and that void with his righteousness. Let's talked a little bit about the doctrine of Calvinism. I met with a young man that was a dear friend of mine, and I'm sure all of you would know him if I mentioned his name. I'm not going to this morning. He was in my wedding party. And he has left the Mennonite church. It had been years since I'd seen him. So sometime recently we were in the area, and I said, can we meet at a restaurant or coffee or something? It looked like my same old friend come in the door, except he had a sports logo on his jacket, and he had one of these little things that proved he was married now it brought back a flood of memories and we started talking about old times and then he talked about where he was going to church and he made this comment he said there are a lot of things I appreciate about our churches and some things I don't because one of the one of the positive things is I have learned so much about the grace of God that I never knew but he said one of the things that troubles me is they're not saying how that grace of God looks and we have people in our congregation that have, have sin in their lives and it's being overlooked. Well, that's the very essence, I think, of what is strong in the Mennonite church is that we, we demonstrate and we want to show what the grace of God looks like. Another way of saying that is what does the righteousness of Christ look like? i made the comment already that the grace of God is the... Currency of the economic system of God. If you have the grace of God, you can, you can buy and sell within his system of economics. Think about it a little bit. If you were in a place where it was a jungle and they didn't have a cash register anywhere, how good will your $100 bill do you in that setting? And so it is. Earthly riches mean nothing in God's economic system, but the grace of God means Everything. And I can know everything there is to know about money or grace. I can know how much is in circulation right now. I can know the color of it. I can know how to identify the fake and all that kind of stuff. But if I never go out and purchase with it, what good, is the, what good does that mean? What good is it to know everything about the grace of God and how free it is if you haven't appropriated it and received it and spent it? And so it's so important that not only do we know about God's righteousness, but that it's part of us. And we're using it and expending it. My circumstances in life does not change the righteousness of Christ. But I believe that the righteousness of Christ will change my place in life. The fact that a person has been greatly sinned against does not change the fact that Christ's way is to love and forgive. To not hate. To not retaliate. To not deride. That's the way of Christ. And nothing changes that fact. Nothing in my circumstance changes the fact that Christ's righteousness and the standard of that has been established. The fact that I find myself in a difficult marriage and have unmet and even driving needs does not change the fact that Jesus said that we must be pure in heart, pure in our thoughts, pure in our desire circumstances do not change the righteousness of Christ. We could go on and list a number of other things. I believe I'm going to move on due to time. But to embrace the righteousness of Christ may cause me to lose something that seems like value. But if we believe that in Christ everything is met and we don't want anything else, we're going to see that loss as being an advantage rather than a detriment. We have something that is enduring. Something that cannot be taken away from us or stolen. Turn with me to to Hebrews chapter 8. And I know this is fairly fresh on our minds. It was last Sunday school's text. I believe this is the very essence of the New Testament. Is speaking here of being an heir to receiving an inheritance. Let's begin with chapter chapter 10, verse 6. But now he, Jesus Christ, obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. For if that covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and regarded not them not, saith the Lord." For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. I will acknowledge that this is saying, this promise is made to Israel. But I believe that the church today is spiritually from the loins of Abraham because we possess the very seed of faith that he possessed. Jesus Christ, when he is within us, this is a precious promise that I can hardly wrap my my mind around, but the righteousness that made Christ righteous is making me righteous. 1 John talks about that. And so, that which made Abraham righteous makes me righteous. And I believe the very essence, there's the word used, a covenant. Another word that could use used for that is the, a testament. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the beauty of the New Testament is righteousness is not an accessory that you put on, but something that puts you on. It comes within the heart. It's written upon the heart. And so it becomes an expression of who I am. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. And I, 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 I hope I'm growing in this even now. But to understand how that righteousness comes on. We, we like stories where fairies come and it, it's all new. That quick. That's not how the righteousness of Christ is written on the heart. When we are converted, all things become new. A direction has changed. But they are becoming new. The righteousness of Christ is being written on our hearts daily. Israel was given a covenant, and yet in here it talks about, in this passage I just read, that they did not continue in that covenant, and so therefore that covenant became void to them as individuals. I believe the same is true today. And when God makes us a promise and we fail to appropriate and to receive it and to love it, we make ourselves exempt from that promise. We need to work it out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, as another scripture would point out in the wording there. But I would like to think of the difficulties and the joys that come to us throughout life are opportunities to take those experiences of life and make the righteousness of Christ real in my life. I don't like it when children fuss and carry on. And I don't think I'm called on to ignore it. But yet I think there's a righteous way to deal with that. There's Christ's way of dealing with that. And I should look at our nearly 2,000 mile excursion as an opportunity to grow in Christ's righteousness. There is so many opportunities to grow in the righteousness of Christ, and we dare not hate or neglect them. I just use one example of parents. I hope all of us can make, you as youth can make those kind of of applications. There are things that you face when mom and dad say, no, I want you to stay home today. I don't want you going out tonight. There are things that need to be done. That is an opportunity for the righteousness of Christ to be made yours personally. And you have a choice. You can say, and even while you're staying home and obeying, you can say, in my heart, I'm out there with the youth. I might be here in body, but you're essentially saying, what I want is more important than what Christ wants. And you fail to lay hold of your inheritance. There's two applications. Continue to make them as you go home. This image of Christ is a growing experience. I would like to look at the type the type or the antitype from the Old Testament. God made a promise to the children of Israel. They had an inheritance and I, there's oftentimes people look at the promised land as being heaven. I think there are some, some valid reasons to believe that, but I don't think when we get to heaven we're going to be fat at fighting the battles of the enemy. I believe that that is speaking of the Christian life in us laying hold and getting rid of the natives. You and I came with some pretty awful natives. And there were some natives in the land of Israel that needed to be exterminated. And that extermination happened little by little. I believe that this morning if all the flesh were totally eradicated in one big old swoop, I don't know that we would know how to inhabit the land properly. I would become, I myself would become very arrogant toward people that hadn't received their inheritance. And I sometimes fight with that as well. One of the indications that I've received my inheritance of the righteousness of Christ is I don't disdain those who are yet growing. I do not become repulsed. Yes, I'm repulsed by sin. But I do not like, like that Pharisee looking down God Thank you that I'm not like that old brother over there. That person did not receive the righteousness of Christ, yet he is not even 101 humble in spirit. He does not recognize his need before God, and so therefore he has all those needs in, in to his account yet. But think about it. If Israel would have crossed the Jordan, and they would have set up their comfortable com- Cabela's chairs on the other side, do you think the milk and honey would have come to them? And all those clusters of grapes, they had to go out and get it. God has made us a promise of his righteousness. And if we say, I said the sinner's prayer, I'm on the way to glory, it's all done. It won't happen. And if we stand before God in judgment and the righteousness of Christ is not on our hearts, we're damned. There's nothing more important to this life than the righteousness of Christ, not only on Judgment Day, but to where I face my brother today. God made a promise to them, and he told them, you're to go out and possess this land, and the natives of the land are more and more powerful than you are. You have an impossible assignment. But he promised them, I'm going to send out the hornets. And I will drive out the inhabitants of the land. He said, I will send my angel before you and will drive out the inhabitants of the land. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 33. Numbers 33, 51 to 56. So speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When ye are passed over Jordan into the land of Canaan, then shall ye drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures and destroy all their molten images and quite pluck down their high places. And ye shall dispose- dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell therein, for I have given you the land to possess it. And ye shall divide the land for- By lot for an inheritance among your families, and to the more ye shall give, the more inheritance; and to the fewer ye shall give, the less inheritance. Every man's inheritance shall be in the place where his lot falleth, according to the tribes of your fathers. Ye shall inherit. But if ye will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then shall, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. Moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. If we are going to be possessors of God's inheritance, we must dispossess all that is native in the land. You and I all have expressions of the flesh that are contrary to the righteousness of God and those Inhabitants must be dispossessed before we can possess. He said, I will drive them out. But in this passage, it says, ye shall drive them out. And so if you have a situation where ye must drive them out, but you cannot, there was a command, but here's the promise. I will drive them out. And if they didn't drive them out, God wouldn't drive them out. It's a contract deal. And so if we're sitting there on our comfortable Cabela's chairs waiting for God to drive them out, it will not happen. We must work in communion, in unity, in oneness with the righteousness of Christ. Now turn with me to Joshua 23. Some more beautiful promises to Old Testament saints, and I think we have the right to claim these promises because of the character and nature of God giving them to us today. I'll begin with reading reading verse 13, and I want to make some more references. But It says, "...know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you, and scourges in your sides, thorns in your eyes." So you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. A very negative but but important warning that was referenced before. But verse 10 says, One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God, he it is, that fighteth for you, as he hath promised. Take good heed therefore unto yourselves, that ye love the Lord your God. I believe this morning that our love for God cannot be any greater than our hatred for iniquity. And that's not hatred for people of iniquity, but hatred for iniquity. It's a common belief that Christians should not hate. You should not become angry. You should just be this calm, resolved person. But I do not believe that we can have the righteousness of Christ unless the zeal of the Lord's house has eaten us up like it did Christ. Christ was not angry with people of the temple so much as the desecration of God's house. This is God's house. And we must be as intense about our own dwelling place for God being free from iniquity. That zeal should eat us up that that place needs to be holy and righteous because God dwells there. We should be possessed with that belief and and, and understanding Turn now to Judges, chapter one, a few pages over. These people were in the land; God was giving them victory. And here we have an example. We're not going to read through this, but if you care to later, it goes and gives a history of all those who took God at His word and were serious about it, and some who didn't. There were a lot of people who laid hold of their inheritance. Judah was the first one that was called to go forth. And verse 17 said, Judah went with Simeon his brother and they slew the Canaanites and inhabited all these places. And it said that the Lord was with Judah. And then verse 21 says, The children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. And the house of Joseph, verse 22, went up against Bethlehem and the Lord was with them. 27, neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants. Neither did Ephraim. Neither did Zebulun. Neither did Asher. And I want to draw a lesson right here. I think many of us can look back to the circumstances that God handed us that we had no say in whatsoever. It could be that you had a dad that molested you. It could be that you had a mom that didn't have her right place in the home. Is it fair that God handed you a package deal like that? Is it fair that certain people inherited different sections that had stronger enemies than others? The fact is this. You and I have an enemy that's native to our hearts, and it doesn't matter if I was raised in a bishop's home, the enemy I have to conquer is still greater than me. It's impossible, but we also have the promise the greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world and the he that is in it. And if I could add to that he that is in the flesh of our hearts. And so God is still generous, regardless of the set of circumstances that I've had that I've come to Christ with. Verse 19 is an interesting verse. Judah was victorious. But it said, And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive the inhabitants of the valley, because they had chariots of iron. Judah couldn't drive out the chariots of iron. But I ask you, could God drive out the chariots of iron? Absolutely. You and I can be victorious in many ways, but if there's one area that we can't, I don't care if it's lust for the young person or the old person or the grandpa. I don't care if it's an anger problem. If there's chariots of iron there that you cannot conquer today, that does not mean God cannot conquer it. But God is limited in what He can do in you and I because we lack the faith. We lack the love for righteousness. And we sit back down on our Cabela's chairs and we wait. And we go on and life is nice and easy. And there remains the enemy. When Israel was strong, in verse 28, it says they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly destroy them. I believe this morning that many, the primary reason that we have counseling centers that are full to the hilt with waiting lists it's because in the time of strength, the church did not continue to use that strength to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And I believe if we become careless towards sin, the next generation is going to see a lack of victory and they're going to believe that it's not possible and they're not going to, they're not going to take God at His word. And that is the very thing that happened here. These people looked around and their brothers in the Lord had natives in their land. That's just normal. We all have it. We all have our besetting sins. That's just my personality type. I just accept it because that's that's the package I came with. We all have packages that we came with, but God wants to give us a new package. He wants to give us an inheritance and it will become ours as we accept it. Before we move on to the next thought, I want to notice here what the angel of the Lord said in chapter 2, verses 1-4. to And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, 'I I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars. But ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore I said, also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept. They became comfortable with the fact and they were even using the natives to their advantage. And when we tuck a sinful desire within our hearts away for convenient times. We'll come to church and we'll worship God and we'll go through all the motions and even get up and speak and do all kinds of things. If we tuck that little love for something that is not of God away to pull it out and use it when it's convenient to us, we've essentially made a league with them in which we're going to benefit by it, but we're going to still possess our inheritance. How flawed. God said it does not work. And I would like to point out to you that it will work in the first generation to the appearance of man. But God sees the heart. And a lot of times this generation that's coming on will see the hypocrisy of our hearts. And they will not pattern their lives after righteousness. They'll pattern it after mom and dad and after the brothers and sisters of the church. And I use that in quotes, brothers and sisters of the church. When we're in content in relation to the righteousness of Christ, and I believe a Christian should be content, but if we're satisfied that I've reached a plateau and I don't need to grow anymore, I think we've just bought into the death of our Christian life. We're not killing anybody. We're not cheating on our wives. But the old man is still alive. It's like a sleeper cell. It's waiting for the time when it will rise up When there's difficulty in the church, there's factions and there's friction. And when there are sleeper cells, when there are natives in the land laying quiet because we're strong, there will come a day when they will rise up and they will take over. God is never going to independently force the old nature out of our hearts. If there is a part of the old nature that I accept and tolerate and even secretly and openly love and unite with, God will not keep his covenant with me to drive them out. And if he won't drive them out, I cannot. Brother Richard Hur was with us, and I'm not quoting this perfectly because I didn't write it down. The concept was, is that more important than the erratic, total eradication of of the inhabitants of our hearts that are native to us is our attitude toward them. Those people who tried, Judah went out and they tried to conquer the natives of the land and there were some that they couldn't. And the, the victory over those chariots of iron was dependent upon how they viewed that which remained. If they were comfortable if they saw any advantage. If they were even saying, well, I can't. I just can't do it. Their attitude toward that and if they by faith believed that God would do it, they would have went from strength to strength. And I believe eventually those chariots of iron would have no longer been a resident of the place where Judah inhabited. Possession of righteousness by faith, the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is a very personal endeavor. You and I have a responsibility. Brother Dennis has a responsibility as an individual. Brother Ellis has a responsibility as an an individual to see to it that the natives that he was born with are eradicated. It's a very personal expression that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees be exceeded in his heart and life. But I believe we are not alone in our inheritance. And I believe this is something that's sometimes neglected, especially in Protestant circles. And I think historically the Mennonite church has been very faithful in practicing a brotherhood relationship with God. We cannot neglect the individual relationship with God, but neither can we neglect the brotherhood relationship with God. We're not alone in our promised inheritance. And so your lack of victory or my lack of victory affects the whole body. When children coming on see that that brother over there is living a loose life, that's normal. They're going to be apt to do the same thing. Look with me at a verse here. Verses 3 and 4 in Judges chapter 1. And Judah said unto Simeon his brother, Come up with me into my lot that we may fight against the Canaanites and I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him and Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. They slew them in Bezek, 10,000 men. It doesn't say in this passage what God thought of the fact that Simeon and Judah got together and said, let's make this a brotherhood endeavor. I don't know what God thought of that, but I know what he thinks of it today. When I come to Brother Dennis and I say, the enemy's too strong for me. Will you help me? Will you help me do battle with this enemy? And when that happens, Dennis and I didn't whip the victory. We didn't whip the enemy. It says that the Lord delivers. And if two or three can agree... What kind of power does it have when the whole church unites in prayer and fasting? Those chariots of iron are gone. That's how God gives victory in the home. That's how God gives victory to individuals, is when we humble ourselves and come to our brother. When we come to prayer meeting, we're not just praying for Mennonite or missions and Christian aid ministries and all those kind of things. When we come and our children hear us say, I'm having a lack of victory in purity. I'm having a lack of victory in maintaining love for the neighbor that's taking advantage of me. Will you help me? More often we hear, Brother Simeon, would you mind your own business? You've got natives of your own. Take care of them. And we justify the natives in our own lives because our brother has them. And we accept it. Judge not that you be not judged. How many times has that been cast? That is not what that passage is saying. I haven't gotten there, but I want to know what that means. I want to know what that means to Brian in this very hour. And I believe that the faithfulness of God's Spirit will show that to me. What it means to judge not that you be not judged. But it doesn't mean accept other people's natives and allow them to be there and to be comfortable with it. The New Testament teaches that the righteousness of Christ is possessed by the body of Christ. And that body, and this is another thing that I can hardly wrap my mind around, it says it is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The bride of Christ is Christ's fullness. Brian is not the fullness of Christ. Dennis is not the fullness of Christ. Brother Dwight is not the fullness of Christ, but the body is the fullness of Christ. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. The passage I just referred to is Ephesians 1 verse 23, if you care to meditate upon that further. Ephesians 4 13 says like this, and we're jumping into a thought, but it says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do you have that vision for this church? You're not going to rest until there's the fullness of Christ in this church. You're not going to pull out your easy chair and just drift along until the weakest brother And it's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to sit down. You're going to be doing battle all of your days. Because while maturity takes place, there's a new generation coming on, praise God. There are more. There are lost souls out in that community that God wants to make to be the completeness of His righteousness. Do we have that vision? Till we all The collective is made of individuals. But those individuals must make up a collective body for the inheritance of Christ. And I want you to think about the fact that it could be in your time of strength you help and aid a brother in victory to where someday he may turn around and do the very same thing for you. I've seen older brethren that have battled as they've approached death. As they've looked at the end of life. And they've needed younger brethren to come alongside of them. The fact that we've aided someone in, in possessing their inheritance does not make us greater than them. The Lord gave the victory. And I believe that as we're faithful... In bringing others to that righteousness, God will be faithful in enabling us to maintain that righteousness. And oftentimes it comes from within. God works through men. God does not often send angels. Usually if an angel has to come and do the work of God, it's because man is absent. Man is not doing as he ought. And it's God's way and method to work through a body of believers. Yes, he works through individuals. And we must have that individual relationship with the Lord, but it cannot replace it. Brothers and sisters, we have a beautiful promise. There is nothing that can resist us in obtaining our inheritance. And yet we have work. And that work will continue on until Jesus comes again. Let us be faithful Soldiers of the cross. Let's not look to be on vacation. It's a term I heard some time ago called a vacationary. There's a person, and it's the idea of we go out and we do our little mission stint and then we have a good time at the end. I don't think it's wrong to have a good time in serving the Lord. But let us be soldiers. Let us be enduring. Let us not be content when a battle is won. And I would like to say, and I would like to encourage people this morning, you may lose a battle or two, but you dare not lose the war. The war is made up of many battles. And just because we've had a victory in a battle doesn't mean we won the war. We win the war, and we can count that the war is won because God said so. But don't let that cause us to wait and to relax. It's a battle, and it will continue to be until the Lord comes again.